So welcome to another episode of the Final Percent podcast. And today you have guest Eileen Gallagher, <laughs> guest um, hosting instead of Greg Kimball. And we have Vicki Hunter with us today. So she and I met probably six or eight weeks ago, maybe even a little bit longer, sometime this summer um, at an Osteo Strong event where I was actually speaking kind of about health and vitality. And she has her own experience with health and vitality in her life. She's a distance runner has been for a long time. She was a political science professor at CU for 23 years and has retired from that and is doing some foundations coaching, which we can talk a little bit about that as well. Mm -hmm. um, but just a general super cool human. <laughs> and we talk a lot about doing cool things with cool people and so wanted to be able to share some of her life experience and things that she's done. Um, she grew up on the East Coast and moved out to Colorado. So why don't you tell us maybe a little bit about what brought you out to Colorado initially? Okay, thank you, Eileen. It's so great to be here with you. And when I met Eileen and heard her speak, I knew I needed to know you better because <laughs> I just felt such a deep connection right away. Meeting a strong, powerful woman who's doing amazing things for me is always exciting. So I love Kudos. that we kind of formed that you. connection <laughs> right away. And it was so easy. I mean, when we went for coffee that one time, I was like, oh my God, I feel we're like, like we're sisters. Yeah, <laughs> fast Exactly. So I. Grew up on the East Coast. As you said, I went to Mount Holyoke College. I was very academically driven in college, I mean, and also athletically driven. So I played competitive lacrosse in high school and college. I did tons of other sports. Uh, always very active from the time I can remember. I mean, from the time I could I don't, basically run around the backyard. I was just very competitive. From the time you started walking. Basically. <laughs> and so sports were always super important to me. And then my dad was a teacher, and I think his push for education and in his family that was a super important thing so I was also pretty driven on that side of things so I went to Mount Holyoke and knew I wanted to go on in academia after several kind of different life choices brought me to that conclusion and after graduation I moved to Hawaii because I Ooh. needed a break from school and I basically played on the beach and waitressed for a couple years and Ooh, I don't know if I heard that and before. it was yeah oh it was super fun <laughs> but it, it just fed my athletic drive because at the time triathlon was becoming kind of a bigger thing this mm. was the early 80s and um, the Ironman was fairly new there and I kind of dabbled in triathlon and but running and being competitive were just kind of side things for me I mean mm -hmm. it was very soul soothing to be an athlete but it definitely wasn't a career choice. I, I knew in my family that was just not something women did. Like I had to do something more sustainable and more substantial. So getting my PhD was kind of next on the list. So I applied to several graduate schools. I got into CU Boulder and I thought, all right, I'll move to Boulder. My sister lived in Colorado and I thought this sounds like a, a great place to go. Well, little did I know that Boulder was kind of the epicenter of running. <laughs> I mean, I really didn't know that Maybe I had heard it, but it just was not the reason I moved here. But once I was here, running was just like thrown in my face and what a beautiful place, right? So I started running more and I run in, ran on the trails and I met a ton of elite runners in town. And again, I was fledgling in my running career. I run one marathon, I finished barely. <laughs> <And> <laughs> That's I mean, more than most people can but, say. <laughs> but I did finish and 
you know, it was a great experience and I loved to run. So I thought, well, I want to do more of this. But I really didn't know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Lo and behold, I meet all these elite athletes and they kind of take me under their wing. I mean, I don't even know why. But I met a bunch of them. I met also a gentleman who actually I ended up having a relationship with. He was a rolfer and he basically decided that I was going to be a marathon runner. And well, they saw potential in you that sometimes probably you didn't even see in yourself. I think so. And I, I still appreciate that to this day mm -hmm. because those people who believed in me helped me to believe in myself. And so I started training, and I was a over four-hour marathoner. But this gentleman said to me, well, I think you can qualify for the Olympic trials. I'm like, what are the Olympic trials, and what does that mean? And so at this point, this is 1986, and there had only been one year of the Olympics where women were running the marathon. Huh. So in 1984 was the first year the women were able to run the marathon. And so 1988 was coming up and it was going to be the second time. The U.S. picks their marathon runners through about the Olympic trial. Of... Yeah, about a year ahead through a process called the Olympic trials where the mm -hmm. top three go to the Olympics. You have to run a qualifying time to get into the trials. So he tells me that the qualifying time is 250. I'm like, 250. That's like more than an hour. I've run four <laughs> like 409. What are you, are you crazy? But he said, you can do it. And I thought, all right, I'll start training. So I did. And with his help and several of the elite runners in town, a year and a half later, I ran 249 at the Twin Cities Marathon. I'm just trying to cut like five minutes off my Boulder Boulder time. Not an well, hour off my I marathon. will tell you, it was, <laughs> it was something kind of astounding to me and mm -hmm. also empowering and it did change my life because all of a sudden I'm running times that are putting me kind of in the national class of women distance runners. Well, and uh, that belief in yourself by other people, or belief from yes. other people that's borrowed. And we talk about that a lot in coaching is sometimes you have to have other people that believe in you yes. before you believe in yourself. And then it builds the confidence in you to actually get to the next level. 100%. But at the same time, I'm still in my doctoral program. I'm still trying to get, finish my PhD. <laughs> right. And fortunately I had a, professor and mentor who was very supportive he was big into sports and he he gave me a lot of support I became I was his research assistant and he he gave me the the room to explore this running side of myself At the same time I became a running coach under the tutelage of a coach in town Rick Rojas who coached kids and he run, won the very first boulder boulder huh. and so I became a coach underneath him Fun. coaching kids and that was kind of where my running coaching started okay I had coached lacrosse earlier in my life but this was new right well this was a whole learning process right I mean I really didn't know much about running when I started this mm -hmm. process but over the last 37 years I've educated myself well it's become part of who you are it totally has become part of who I am so the problem is or the problem was for me I started having the success in running and when I first started running I'm gonna take a step back it was really to soothe myself I grew up in a household where I had a very depressed mother, and I swore to myself when I was younger that I was not going to be like that. Mm -hmm. So movement was my medicine. Or your way out of Out yeah, of that depression, yes. So for me, it was always just about making myself feel better. It never was about running fast times or... Getting to the Olympics. <laughs> yeah, no, I, that had nothing to do with it. But once I started running faster times, that's a very seductive thing. And so then What's crossing some of those accomplishments and then being more motivated to do more and to achieve more and succeed more. Yeah. And I'm already that kind of person who likes to who like to achieve things. 
And one of the confounding things for me as a, when I was growing up, <clears throat> is that part of my achievement-oriented drive was thinking that it would make my mother happy. The more mm. I achieved, I thought, well, this, now this is going to make her happy. It never did. I mean, it was very fleeting. Well, and so much of happiness is an inside job, so things you're doing aren't going to necessarily make her happy. But as a kid, I thought, well, if I just get that next A. Right. Oh, if I'm like the star on the team. Right. Um, if I run a fast race, you know, maybe that will give her joy. And it would for about two seconds. <laughs> and then she would go right back to her depression and her kind of not feeling good about herself. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, it was just a double-edged sword because everything I did that was achievement-oriented, I was her kid, so she was happy for me, but at the same time, I think it made her feel somewhat bad about herself. Like less than or inadequate yeah, or something? Yeah, because she never got to explore her athletic side. Well, and some but, of that was generational. Their generation, women didn't have those same opportunities. 100%, and I knew that to a certain degree, or I figured out, but she, I think, she just felt the limitations, maybe. Yes, and she never really got to explore. She had so much talent on, on so many levels, mm -hmm. and she never really got to fully explore that those mm -hmm. sides of herself, her mm -hmm. athletic side. She was an amazing businesswoman, but at the same time, she was never encouraged mm -hmm. to do that. So mm -hmm. there were things that she never got to, I think, fully develop. Or explore. That, that I did. Right. Uh, so anyway, she and I battled throughout our lives to be honest, because there was this push-pull. I was trying to achieve, she would kind of be happy for me, but at the same time she would push back against me, and mm -hmm. that kind of went on for much of my adult life. Mm -hmm. And trying to kind of, like, I don't know, parse that out was, was part of my journey. It's still part of my journey, even though she's gone now. Well, finding uh, forgiveness and yeah. how do you move on and how do you then empower your children, which we'll talk about a little bit later, exactly. too. So <clears throat> anyway, I going back to kind of the progression of my life, I continued to be fairly successful at running, even while I got my PhD, and then I got a teaching position at mm -hmm. CU, and was able to kind of join both of those things. And that one of the reasons I stayed in Boulder was because I could do both. I could teach, I could be an athlete, I could be a coach, and all of those things kind of came together. And I was going for all of it. I was running ultra-distance races, I was running um, with my friends in the mountains all day. I was teaching classes. At the same time, I was approaching 30, and I wanted a baby. Like, I really wanted to have a family. You were ready. I was ready. You felt your clock ticking. I did, and it was, you know, like a time bomb going off my body, because before that, in my mid-20s... You were focused on other things. And I didn't think I wanted kids, yeah. but then when it hit, it hit hard. Yeah. So then, of course, because I'm so driven driven and focused I thought okay now it's time to find your partner yeah. <laughs> and so I took that on as my next mission and went through several relationships some yep. that weren't so great yeah but then met my husband-to-be when he was still married this was huh. we met when I was about 34 we okay. became friends uh -huh. but he was just as much of an athlete as me which was very appealing to me mm -hmm. he was also super fun but when I found out he was married I'm like nope that's not for me, yeah. you know, I'm not gonna go down that road. Mm -hmm. But his first marriage didn't work out, mm -hmm. so he actually called me out of the blue one day. I'd just gotten out of a really bad relationship, and he told me what was happening, and I just said, well, you need to come out with me and my friends, we're just gonna go out and, and have fun. See what happens. Yeah, but I wasn't even thinking about him being in a relationship with him, because I thought he's... He's still dealing with his old, yeah. you know, his divorce oh, and but transition. Then I, 
I opened the door when he came to pick me up, and I took one look at him, and I said, I'm in I'm trouble. In trouble. <laughs> one, I mean, I knew I was in trouble. And it was pretty much, for me, love at first sight. I mean, huh, interesting. And within three because months. Because there was the possibility, whereas before there wasn't the possibility. Yes, I suppose. And he just had this magnetism about him. Hmm. And we were both so, we had the same interests. We both loved to be out running all day, biking. Or outside, yes, doing activities, we were very, engaging in life. So that connection and the fact that he was so fun yeah. just kind of pulled us together. Well, within three months, we were basically engaged. We were, I mean, I'd say within three weeks, we were practically living Inseparable. together. Yeah, so it just happened very quickly. Mm -hmm. Just like everything else in my life at that time, I feel like everything was just in this fast pace. And that's just kind of part of who I am, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I think growing up on the East Coast, things tend to be pretty fast-paced, and my family was certainly like that. Very impatient. You want <laughs> you want everything yesterday. Yeah. Like, it's not enough to have it today. You want it right. yesterday, and then you want to just go into the future. Right. So I kind of continued on that path, and my husband was kind of on a similar path. He's manic in, in so many ways. So we kind of fit, but I really didn't know what I was getting into when I married him. It was kind of like marrying a, a tornado. And we got engaged, we got married, I was pregnant within two months. And I continued down this path of just going for it. I was working full time. Right. I'm still trying to do all my athletic yep. stuff. And he and I were just kind of going full bore. And then- Something happened that then inspired you to write your book. Yes, something pretty horrific. Yeah. So I was 14 weeks pregnant. We were living up on, we both had wanted to live in the mountains. So we bought a house up on Magnolia Road, mm -hmm. which for anyone who doesn't live in Boulder, that's, goes, you're, to get to Magnolia Road, you go up Boulder Canyon and it's kind of a pretty isolated area. It's a few thousand feet above Boulder. Mm -hmm. And it was magical. We had 30 acres. We, it was pretty much heaven on earth, mm -hmm. but the drive was not heaven on earth for me. Especially in the winter. Yeah, and we, this was, so to be honest, this day, it was September 11th, 1997 mm -hmm. of all days, right? So 9-11. Except for that was many years before 9-11. It was four years before, but it's just to me, it's such an interesting idea that it happened on this day. And I had gone to work, my husband had gone to work, we drove separately, we went to a function at Boulder Theater mm -hmm. that evening. Again, I'm 14 weeks pregnant, I was having really bad morning sickness so nothing was appealing to me eating, eating wise, wise. Mm -hmm. so once again my blood sugar was probably low and I there was no food to be spoken of at this event so I turned to my husband around nine o'clock and I said I'm hungry I'm tired I'm gonna go home he walks me to my car it's the last thing I remember I drove up the mountain the top of the mountain I lost control of the car I spun into a tree the entire right side of the car was smashed in on my body and I didn't I don't remember any of this because I have amnesia around the accident mm -hmm. someone found me shortly after this happened mm -hmm. I was off the road in a field and they called 911 a helicopter landed in the field meanwhile my husband doesn't know what happened he's still at the event he drove he left about a half hour 45 minutes after me mm -hmm. comes up the road sees this line of cars flashing helicopter. lights he didn't see the helicopter yet because mm. he wasn't there. Close enough. But he sees these cars and he starts running down the road. A cop tells him that someone was in an accident. He said, what's the car? 
The cop says a white Subaru. He literally panics, runs towards me. Again, the, now the helicopter is there. He tells them I'm pregnant. They didn't know mm. that I was pregnant. So I get flown to a trauma hospital, St. Anthony's in Denver. Mm -hmm. The next morning, I do come to, I was actually talking apparently, but when I wake up or come to consciousness in the hospital room, I can't talk because I have a tube down my throat. Mm. And I had so many injuries, but having a trach, like a tube down my throat and then a tube in, tube in my side. Did you have a pneumothorax or something? Yes, and then I head? had, so I had broken 10 ribs. I had a collapsed lung. I had a punctured liver. Mm -hmm. I had three skull fractures resulting Oof. in brain injury. I broke my sacrum. I broke my pubic symphysis. For an athlete, that all sounds really bad. It was really bad. and But the brain injury was so interesting because I knew what happened, but I didn't know what happened. So mm -hmm. I couldn't talk, but I wrote him a note. I said, how did I get into a bike accident? Mm. I actually thought I was, had been in a bike accident. Interesting. And he said that didn't happen. Like, I didn't ask that that first day, although that's my memory. He says, and that wasn't for a couple of days where I asked that. But regardless, I didn't know what had happened. Why am I here? What happened? Yes. Now, I did know I was pregnant at some level. Mm -hmm. I knew I was pregnant. But I was in that intensive care unit for over two and a half weeks. Hmm. And they monitored everything. everything. But they couldn't do anything besides give me some pain medication. So I was on morphine, mm -hmm. which was horrifying to me because I knew the baby was inside me. I did not want to be on pain medication. So as soon as I could, I weaned myself off of that. Mm -hmm. After two and a half weeks, they decided I was ready to go to a therapy hospital, which I went to like the... Like a rehabilitation Yeah, center. so I went to the Mapleton Rehab Center. And basically, I spent the next six months Recovering. getting ready to have that baby. Hmm. And I took it on like I was training for my next marathon. I just set a schedule in my mind that I was going to train. To be, to have, to be a mom and be ready yes. to have the baby. And, you know, of course it was scary because we didn't know if she was okay. I mean, we kind of knew because they were monitoring well, her. she's pretty protected at 14 weeks. Yes, and that's what the doctor said. <clears throat> so she was definitely, the amniotic fluid is an amazing thing. So she was pretty protected, and lo and behold, she was born on her on her due date, which I still find a total miracle. Yeah. I did need a C-section, but I went into labor. So you're a pretty <laughs> tiny lady, too. So. Well, right, so who knows if I would have been able to have her You might have had naturally. a C-section anyway. anyway. <laughs> yeah, uh, but what happened was I was recovered enough. By the time I was seven months pregnant, I was out snowshoeing in the mountains outside Great. our house with poles yep. and yeah you know, she's like this out in front of me this big i was huge i looked like a stick figure with a basketball well being as my... trim as you are there's not a lot of space in your body for it to go so it all had to come out that's true <laughs> that, that's what i looked like i mean i look at pictures of myself i'm like wow i have a watermelon in front of me <laughs> yes. so i definitely recovered but i will never forget the feeling i had when i was in labor all of the pain memories of being back in the intensive care unit mm -hmm. just came flooding back into my body. Yeah. And I think I kind of was reliving the trauma. A little PTSD from yeah. the accident yeah. when you were in the hospital. Yeah. But then she was born and she was healthy and it was amazing. The next six weeks were euphoric mm -hmm. for both of us. Mm -hmm. And there were some complications, but they weren't connected to the accident. Uh, she was born with a club foot, which we've, you know, we dealt with yep. in many ways, but she otherwise was completely healthy. And to, to this day, she's an amazing athlete and an amazing human, but mm -hmm. we've had, she's had struggles that I think, you know, many kids go through. I think because she had 
that trauma while she was in the womb, I think she had an added challenge mm -hmm. as she was growing up. Mm -hmm. But meanwhile, come so there back, was some maybe physical memory for her, even though she wasn't on the outside when it happened. I think that's probably accurate. Yeah. Yes. I think there's a lot of traumas that we don't necessarily learn to process or know how to process yeah. that there's residual effects of later in life. I agree. And so what happened was when, when she was a baby, I'm thinking, wow, this is a miracle. I recovered from this accident. She was it's born. Doing great. And I thought, I have to write a book about this. So mm -hmm. early on, I decided I was going to write a book. Mm -hmm. But it was going to be this kind of, I don't know, just a, a tell-all of how I did it, how mm -hmm. I recovered from this horrible accident. But meanwhile, I had another child a couple years later. And, and you were busy parenting and I'm parenting, and um, running. Yeah, and I'm teaching <laughs> full-time at the university, or three-quarter time at the yeah. university, yeah. trying to continue the running. Yeah. And at a... Pretty and you were able to re-engage in the running with your recovery pretty well. I was, which was also... A miracle. A almost. miracle, especially in the hospital when I couldn't walk. I was in a wheelchair. Mm. I had said to myself, I said it inside and I said it actually to my husband. I said, it's okay. If I never run again, it'll be fine as long as this She's baby okay. is born healthy. Well, that went out the window <laughs> pretty much as soon as she I realized I could run. Once I could run, I thought, well... How fast can I run? Because that's where my brain Well, because you're so go. driven. Yeah. yeah. So pretty soon I'm back running races. My husband and I are going to 50 mile races. We're doing, you know, back on that treadmill of yeah. achieving, yep. but also bringing our kids with us whenever we can to whatever yep. race we signed up for. It became a family affair. Mm -hmm. Tried to include them in everything we did. And that next period of life was very, uh, Intense. I mean, I think back and I think how much we tried to cram in, not just into our lives in general, but into a day. Mm -hmm. I mean, we never had a day that was still, you know, we were on the go, on the go all the time. And the kids learned that kind of way of being. Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways they decided that wasn't working for them. I remember when they were about both kids, one was maybe nine and the other was 12. And Brian and I would wake up and we'd say, okay, we're going to Eldora, we're going to ski. And they're like, no, we're not. We don't want to go. And Brian and I would look at each other, well, what do you mean you don't want to go? Of course we're going. And there was a point where we had to say, okay, you don't want to go? We can leave you home. Kids start to have a voice uh, they, of their exactly. own at some point. And I appreciate that they yeah. kind of stuck up for themselves. Well, and, and good that you gave them the space to have a voice of their own. Yeah, so they did. But we always insisted that they be athletic in some way because mm -hmm. that's what saved us. And we thought... You know, we wanted them to have that as a resource. Well, and as an outlet for managing stress. And yes. But they did rebel against it as teenagers. And we went through a lot of strife when both girls were teenagers. There were many things that we had to balance. Brian and I had some marital issues based around financial stuff. And then we found out Jade had a drug problem when she was in high school. And Brian was a recovering alcoholic. So there were many pieces coming into this. Most people's lives are very layered. Very layered. But I think what I didn't realize at the time was how much <laughs> I was using my exercise and running in particular to run away from anything that was hard. Like for, for running for me was always a safe place. Mm -hmm. That's where I felt good. It's where I felt good about myself. It was achievement oriented. Mm -hmm. So it gave... And you had control over all of it. Control, huge, right? So I continued to rely on that. Well, 
the year that changed everything. I'm kind of jumping ahead sure, a little yeah. bit, but it takes But I mean, it's kind of the thoughts of the book way back. Yes. And then moving along through the next parts of your life right. to then how the book evolved right. to being different than here's what happened, but here's what it taught right. me. And exactly. And I am a planner. So I had it all planned out. You know, I planned out I was going to get my PhD. I was going to get married and have a baby. At least one, and I did have two. Uh, I was going to keep teaching. I was going to keep running. And just, you know, it was based on all these milestones that I saw myself achieving. Well, of course, thing, life just doesn't go that smoothly. Especially with parenting. Especially <laughs> with parenting. And, you know, that's the thing that no one tells you when you decide to become a parent. So in 2016, I was getting ready to retire from CU mm -hmm. because I had been on a journey of kind of improving my own body. I still had some residual effects from the accident. Mm -hmm. And so I, was, I would go to bed every night in some sort of pain. Mm -hmm. My back was still very um, compromised. Mm -hmm. But in 2014, I found something called foundation training mm -hmm. that gave me relief. And mm -hmm. I thought, wow, this is amazing. I want to learn this. I want to teach this. So when I, had when I decided to retire from CU, I wanted to take my next chapter into helping people find relief from pain. Well, we kind of talked a little bit about the coaching pieces, like with your running coaching, yes. being coached, yes, and then helping with coaching probably was a really great segue for you to move into coaching with foundations because you understand the way people operate and then being someone who'd been an elite athlete that had a lot of injuries and other things and then transitioned into this place of the accident and then into your own recovery process, but then found something that could actually really truly help you heal mm -hmm. besides just barreling through things. Right. Um, if this can make me feel better, how can I share something that can make other people feel better? And that is what happened. I can't say that I had that. I, I never knew when I embarked on the journey of getting certified in foundation training where it was going to take me. Which we don't always have the epiphany beforehand. We don't. <laughs> but what did happen is in 2016, when, which was the year I retired from CU, mm. it was the year my mother passed away. Mm. And it was the year we found out Jade had this drug problem. That's a big year. It was huge. Kind of pulled the rug out from under a little bit. It totally pulled the rug out. And I have a quote in the book by um, Zora Neale um, Thurston saying, there are years that ask questions and there are years that answer. And for me, 2016 was definitely the year that asked a the lot questions. Of questions. And I, it took me the next, well, I'm still unraveling the mm -hmm. answers, mm -hmm. but I still was determined to write the book about my recovery because I felt like at that point, I just wanted to tell people, well, this is how you do it. And I have the answers. Well, towards the end of that year, here I am thinking I have the answers. A little humbling experience. <laughs> I'm running on the trails with my niece up in Aspen. Again, I've been pushing the envelope mm -hmm. of activity. I trip on a pebble that was probably this big, but I land on a boulder that is huge. Mm -hmm. And I break my arm in half. Mm. And it was like the world saying, Vicki, you down. might think you have things <laughs> under control, but you do not. Right. And it started me on this journey of really having to look deeper. Mm. Like, what is going on here? Mm -hmm. How come you keep having these mm. accidents mm -hmm. that are not accidents? Like in my mind, yes, there are unfortunate things that happen to me, but there's a pattern here and I needed to get to the bottom of it. Well, the other thing we say, things don't happen to you, things happen for you. Yes. 
And I look back now on my car, on the car accident, on breaking the arm, and as much as it sounds crazy and as painful as those experiences, experiences were, were mm -hmm. they definitely brought me to this chapter in my life, which now being over 60 and being on this path of exploration of not just physical health, which I do think I'm in a pretty good place, but You're also- You're exceptional. Especially for most people in your age group, you are you are a specimen of physical um, thank you of wellness in lots of ways for all the things you've been through. But I still think I'm seeking out the balance, and it's the second half of the title of my book is seeking balance. In yes, we have the book world. for you to look at. It's called Returning or Running and Returning: Seeking Balance in the Imperfect World. Yeah. So talk a little bit about writing the book, yeah. and then kind of what evolution you went through with writing the book. Okay. Well, writing the book, like I said, I started out, I retired in July of 2016, and I gave myself a year. I'm going to write this book. It's going to be done in a year. I'm going to be done. Yeah. I found an editor, and the first editor, she worked with me, and she said, yeah, you know, you have some work to do. But she, we were back and forth, and it was a really interesting process because she was mostly kind of coaching me on the organization of the book. And well, with a PhD in political science, you've done a lot of writing with your thesis and all that, so you have writing experience. But writing a novel or a book is very different than writing. It was so different. I yeah. mean, I started out writing as like an academic. I'm going to do my thesis. Yes, <laughs> and that the, this book could not be that. But it started out like that, and that was a way to get words on paper. Right. But I went so far with that first editor. Her name was Terja, and she was great. But then we got to a point where we really weren't making more progress. You're kind of at a standstill. So, and again, I was a little frustrated because I thought at this point, I thought I was going to have a book. So then I kept exploring and I did a, sometime shortly after that, in that next year, I did a meditation retreat. Hmm. And that was super helpful <clears throat> in getting me, it was a running and meditation retreat. So we were <laughs> moving and, yes, it wasn't, I wasn't there yet. I wasn't that evolved. But it did help me to start putting some pieces together. And what I realized in that retreat is that this book was not just about my recovery. I had to bring in my mother's story mm -hmm. and my daughter's story. Mm -hmm. Like it was just not gonna be enough. Well, and sometimes it's generational things that happen that help you understand your own participation on kind of both ends. Yeah, so that, so that became a big theme for me is that intergenerational trauma. I realized that my mother's depression contributed to her issues as an adult and what she used as coping mechanisms. And then that was transferred to me. But your coping mechanisms just look different. Yes. And You're then just running Jade and physical activity. Picked different coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. But we all had that underlying trauma that was passed down. Mm -hmm. And so I look at it, I don't claim to be an expert on intergenerational trauma, but I did do research while I was writing the book. And so it brought me to that next phase. And then I found another editor who really pushed me. Um, her name's Sarah, and she just got me to be really vulnerable and honest, and that mm -hmm. was super hard. It was three years of working with her, of writing, and I'd, I'd give her the manuscript, and I'd say, yeah, she's going to love this, and I would get it back with just marked up to pieces. And I'd be like, Read oh. everywhere. <laughs> yes, everywhere. Well, and you're I, used to being the one who's the performer, and now you're basically being yeah. told, well, you're kind of in the crawling stage. Yes, yes, and that's how it felt. And, but I didn't give up, and I just kept working well, on it. Well, because you're persistent. 
Yeah. We talk about, <laughs> Greg talks a lot about being a perseverance expert and mm. a lot of times with things in our life, you really just have to keep pushing yourself to achieve and, and do more and do better and figure out right. kind of how to navigate the system a little bit. Right. And while I'm writing the book, I mean, remember in the first three years, we're still helping Jade navigate her recovery. Yeah. So she was, you know, we were trying to help her become sober and find that path, uh, which she did. I mean, she's doing great now. Yeah, she's amazing. But she had to find her own path. Yeah. We, and she had to make the choices herself. Like, we, as much as we wanted to model for her and, and do what we did, that was not going to be her. Her choices were going to be different. Yeah, yeah. So we had to let that happen. I had to grieve my mother in a way that I wasn't ready to do. When she first passed. Yes. So that also was happening. My father had passed a couple years before. I had to deal with some of those emotions as well. So there was a whole grieving process that went on while I was writing the book and also this deeper understanding of myself and what drives me to do what I do. Mm -hmm. And I had to recognize that I've chosen running as my coping mechanism and yes, I still love to run. It's still my go-to. It's still part of my identity. Mm -hmm. But there are times when it has not served me. Mm -hmm. And I've made bad choices. So kind of coming to those conclusions, it's still a work in process, in, in progress. I'm not perfect at this. I still... Perfect is overrated anyway. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah I mean, and again, I will say to the outward eye, I might still seem obsessed. I'm running the New York City Marathon next week. Mm. I haven't been willing to give up those goals mm -hmm. because they still make me feel really good. Mm -hmm. But well, it I've gives you a way to push yourself with your training and to continue to achieve. Yeah. But you have it in a different perspective than you did many years ago. For sure. And I have a much more balanced approach to training, to my goals. I think I'm much more realistic about what I'm trying to achieve. I decided to do a charity um, like I'm devoting. You're running for a charity. I'm running for a charity. Oh, fun. In so I'm doing donations. Yes. So that also feels so much more meaningful. Well, it's nourishing to the soul because you're giving back. You're doing something for yourself, but you're also then able to give back yes. to people who are in need. Yeah. So I'm just seeking out ways to make my life more balanced. Nice. On a daily basis. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just try to find the joy in just being mm -hmm. on a daily basis rather than having to achieve. Mm -hmm some major thing every day well and a lot of it's working on vitality from a different perspective right. so instead of the push 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 it's the finding the balance like you talk about yeah so sharing foundation training for me which is a postural alignment program developed by a chiropractor named dr eric goodman mm -hmm. who anyone can look that up online you can google dr eric goodman you can find foundation training it changed my life i'll be honest it gave me more power over my own body i had been dealing with injuries my whole life and foundation training was the first thing that kind of fit my new perspective of how can I come to more balance without a lot of strife you know like more it's something you can use every day mm -hmm. it's something that you don't need equipment you need someone to kind of teach you initially right. but then it's something that you can integrate into your life well, it's all about stabilizing the core so that your whole body is overall strong, but to have that, which is probably the impetus behind the name, but to have that strong foundation so that then the rest of your body functions well. Yes, and finding the, your correct positioning so that when you move, you're not moving kind of in these erratic 
like unstable weights. Mm -hmm. It's about finding, yes, stability is probably mm -hmm. the primary thing mm -hmm. versus a lot of practices. I mean, I had done yoga, I had done Pilates, and I still do those things. But all of those mm -hmm. kind of contributed to this feeling of, um, I don't know, it, those, the focus there is more on flexibility and kind of taking you out of or into a range of motion that might well, not be muscle toning and strengthening yeah. as opposed to the foundational pieces sometimes. Yeah, and I think they're all connected. I mean, right. I think if you can look at any movement practice and they have the same fundamental principles, mm -hmm. but for me, foundation training spoke to my body yeah. and it gave me the tools I needed to really help myself. And that's why I've devoted my life now, kind of this third chapter of my life, mm -hmm. to helping people find more balance, better movement, mm -hmm. uh, Yes, and more, I think, peace. Because one of the big parts of foundation training is the breath work. And so we kind of go back and forth between our sympathetic nervous system and our parasympathetic nervous system. Mm -hmm. And that happens on a daily basis. It happens over time. And I would say for most of my life, I've been in my sympathetic nervous system, that well, fight or flight. the stress in the world today, yes. the more we can try to disengage from the stress piece and move into the parasympathetic and be in a place of rest or a place of caretaking that helps with the vitality piece in terms of instead of being always exactly. being able to be like, oh, okay. But for me, and I, I tell an anecdote in the book about how I would do yoga classes, but it would kind of come time for Shavasana, I was out the door. I would never lay still for Shavasana. This, huh. When my kids were growing up, I'm like, nope, I gotta get to the next thing. I yep. gotta get them out of daycare. I gotta go to the grocery store. I have to do, so I would never lie still. Hmm. I mean, that was just not Your in my wheelhouse. Yeah. So now... Well, you also didn't give yourself permission, and you hadn't been taught no. that that part of taking care of yourself is important. Yes, and I think it's, it was a huge piece for me of, like, what was missing. Mm -hmm. And so now, that is a side. Again, foundation training was a huge piece of finding that. Shifting. But I had to go through a lot of grieving and letting go, kind of shedding some layers listening to my children telling me what they needed, which was for me to be more still and more, more quiet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and more present for sure, mm -hmm. helped with that as well. So it wasn't just one thing. Right. But foundation training, I, I just can't say enough how much it's helped me and how much joy I get from sharing that with people right. now in this part of my life. Okay. So one of the things that we did talk about in terms of kind of one of the things you wanted to share kind of about the process of writing the book is that um, so much pressure and drive in our culture to push and succeed, um, how that can sometimes serve us, but actually how does that hold us back? Yes. Share a little bit about that, how that showed up for you. Well, it showed up because again, I was so anxious to get the book out. I mm -hmm. mean, for me, it became one more- Check mark. Check mark <laughs> to tick off, you know, and, and so being patient with that, like having to take six and a half years mm -hmm. of my life was, a huge challenge for me but I learned to slow down and let the process happen I still think even I could have probably taken another year mm -hmm. to fine-tune stuff fine-tune stuff but there it, it got to a point where and my publisher also kind of pushed me you can keep working on something and you're still never going to find perfection. Well, that's the whole thing. It's, it's right. never going to be. It's Sometimes gonna, done is better than perfect. It's never going to be perfect. <laughs> and when I, when I look back on the book now, I realize 
what's interesting is that it captures a piece of my life and a time in my life that is very significant and it, but it only tells part of the story because mm -hmm. where it stops is you know it's it's just unfinished because it's not my whole life right so well, do you have book number two in your <laughs> it's I've been, well what i've been doing is blogging a lot yeah. since since the book and uh -huh. and writing about where i am now and yes i think that i do have another book in me yeah. but i haven't this is the new me i'm not forcing that yeah. to happen like yeah. oh vicky you wrote one now you have to write another <laughs> but i definitely am still processing the book only came out a year ago so to me, I'm still kind of taking in and learning. Well, and sharing the book with people and yes. talking to people about it. Yeah. Who, who do you think is kind of the perfect audience for the book? I mean, it could be anyone, but it, it could if be you anyone. were going to give it out as a, like a Christmas gift or as a, you know, to a friend for their birthday, who would be the best person, do you think, to read it? Someone that's an elite athlete, someone that pushes themselves a lot? So I, so I think there's a few different groups that mm -hmm. I was trying to address or or attract and help with this book or mm -hmm. I, I mean help sounds so condescending um it more give my experience so that maybe yeah. they can learn from it so initially like i said i was i wrote it because i do think i know how to recover from injuries <laughs> that is something i definitely know how to do mm -hmm. and so in some ways it's a how-to book of that because mm -hmm. in the back of the book i have an appendix about all the modalities i use mm -hmm in a physical and emotional way to Recover. heal. Mm -hmm. And there's many things in there from using hydrotherapy, which was a huge part of my healing, mm -hmm. to meditation, to foundation training. I mean, there's so many pieces in there that I think people can learn how to heal from those physical injuries. I definitely think the compulsive athlete is someone who should read this mm -hmm. book because that was me and it can still be me at times, but people who compulsively move and especially have one sport that mm -hmm. is their go-to sport and mm -hmm. they don't have other outlets the cross training makes a big difference in terms of not having as many injuries for yes sure. and i was always a cross trainer but yeah. i still got injured because i was still so driven mm -hmm. and even when i got injured i wasn't able to let go of my ego enough to say okay i can slow down mm -hmm. process this and let my body real and my mind really heal so I think that's a lesson that athletes can learn from, mm -hmm. that there is a time to stop, mm -hmm. you know, just to stop. Or slow down. Yeah, I slow down. Maybe not, like, I think we want to move as much as we can. Even when you're injured, even if it's a pretty significant injury, if you stop, everything freezes up. So you yeah. need to keep moving, but you don't necessarily have to push yeah. yourself in the same ways. I mean, ways. two days after my car accident, I'm in intensive care, and I'm trying to walk around the nurse's station. Mm -hmm just to get my mind because I don't think lying in bed is the answer no, for anybody most I mean, of the time I, it is not in recovery right so yes but then balancing it out with being kind to yourself and mm -hmm. just I think that's my, one of my biggest messages to compulsive and very intense athletes is don't be so hard on yourself mm -hmm. recognize that injuries will happen and that you want to be kind and let your body take the necessary steps mm -hmm. it has to to get to the next phase. You can't mm -hmm. force it. Mm -hmm. I also think the book is really good for parents because... So that was one of the other questions that we want to talk about. Yeah, I mean... The parenting par things that no one tells you. Yeah, and when I started out writing the book, I really had no intention of writing about parenting. Mm -hmm. I, I would, that was not at all part of the plan. I wasn't going to even write about 
being in a marriage that, you know, and, and revealing so much that I do. Yeah. I mean, I really kind of get very vulnerable and, and talk a lot about some of the issues that Brian and I had to get through to stay together. And it wasn't easy at times. So I don't want to say it's a, it's like a counseling book for, you know, marriage, but you, people could learn from our lessons. It's not a handbook in other words, but Brian and I really had to well, you both commit. Leaned in. We leaned in and there were times where I was so ready to walk out the door or have him walk out the door. Mm -hmm. But we, I had made a vow to myself that when I got married, it was, I was going to stay in it. Yeah. And well, some of the, the best relationships are the ones where you work through hurdles and challenges together yeah, yeah. because you're committed to working the process yeah. and uh, showing up for each other, which right. is huge to have someone that has your back all the time. Yeah. And he and I had such different approaches because he was coming from being an addict. You know, so he started drinking when he was pretty young and he had all those memories of what he went through as mm -hmm. a teenager. Mm -hmm. And I had experimented when I was a teenager, but I wasn't addicted to substances. Mm -hmm. So I was, it was very easy for me to try substances and then say, ah, that's not you for me. You don't have that addictive personality. Yes. I mean, I have an addictive personality in terms <laughs> of running. movement, <laughs> like for sure. Right. But not to the substances. So mm -hmm. I didn't understand that the way mm -hmm. he did. Mm -hmm. So when we came together to try and help Jade, mm -hmm. we definitely came from different perspectives. Yes. Yeah. Which maybe helped. It made for some challenging yeah. times. Yeah. But I do think the lesson there for parents is you don't know <laughs> what you're going to end up with. And to think when you have that baby, you look at them and you think, oh, I can handle this. I know what's going to happen. I know how to control this. No way. Like, just a complete, for me, utter shock in terms of how much my kids have taught me about what I don't know what I don't understand, how individual they are, how unique they are. Well, I was, I, I actually shared this on a live the other day, but um, I listened to this podcast or maybe it was in a book, I can't remember, but how they talk about when they interviewed children when they were five, like 98% of them were geniuses. And then they interviewed them, the same kids yeah. at 10 and only 32% of them were. Oh, and then they interviewed them at 15 and only 3% of them were. And it's because as parents and as teachers and in our system, we remove some of their creativity. Yes. We remove some of their independent thinking. And so it sounds like you give some ideas in the book about ways that you can actually let your children sort of drive and dictate some of the things. And that we as parents, even though we think we know it all, right. that we can really learn a ton from children. And I think yes. we've gotten away from that. We've been like, oh, well, this is the way you do it. Right. And I think... For me, coming from such an academic background, and my family, East Coast Jews, you know, it's what you... It was all about school. It was all about school. And so I actually thought that my kids would follow on that track. But and I be realized, academic. Yes, but I yeah. realized at a young age that, that they did not that wasn't who they were. fit into that mold. But I took it on as a personal project that I was going to help them navigate school in whatever way I could. So... By the time we got through middle school with both of them, it was very clear to me that they weren't traditional learners. I needed to kind of figure out ways to help them, especially Jade. She went to four different high schools. Mm. And for me, that was never, it was never like, well, no, you have to make this work and you have to stay here. Right. I helped her kind of find her path. And I, 
I don't know that I did the best job. I just gave her permission. But that's a huge job is allowing. I, tr I tried. I, I believe I tried. But at the same time, I was missing certain <laughs> signals, I think, that she was sending. Mm -hmm. uh, fortunately, she felt secure enough to ask for help when she what really she needed. needed it. Yeah. And then we listened. And then she set a path that she was going to graduate high school on time and she was going to continue to play sports and, and do everything while in recovery. Good for her. And I thought that was absolutely amazing. Yeah. And she drove that train. I was just there and my husband was there to support her. But I think now what I've learned, and this is kind of after the book is over, like I don't, <laughs> I don't get to this point in the book. Right. And this might be book two. Yeah. Both my kids are now in their 20s and the lives they're leading are so remarkable. And if I had, if you had looked at them when they were in school, they certainly weren't the top students. Mm -hmm. They were very good athletes, but were they the best on their teams? No. Um, they definitely were gifted on, in so many levels, but they chose to, I think, take a different path of not striving to be the best because I think they were they watched the example. reacting to what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And so they did not want to follow in that path. They needed to find their own way. Mm -hmm. But now, with what they're doing in their lives, they are achieving amazing things. And well, I, that's a gift as a parent to be able to watch that evolution. It's, it's so The coolest amazing. thing it's ever. The yeah. coolest thing ever. Yeah. And, and it's completely their own, of their own making. Except for that you gave them a space to be able to do it. So give yourself some credit, too. Uh, you you modeled things that we're I was talking about a, a, this with a business colleague today. Sometimes there's things that you watch that a leader does. So like as a parent mm -hmm. and a family as a leader, but in work environments, there's sometimes things leaders do that are like, ooh, I want to do that. Like I like the yeah. way that felt and I like how that yeah. went. And then sometimes people do something. You're like, ooh, that feels all kinds of icky. Mm -hmm. I don't want that for myself. Mm -hmm. So part of watching how leaders perform is to see those are things I'd like to emulate or things I'd like to do. Right. And then there's other things that you're like, oh, I think I'd like to do that differently. Yeah. And yes. so your children learned on their own, but you gave them the space to be okay with pushing back and saying, yeah, that doesn't really work for me. Yeah, and I think that's definitely a huge lesson for parents because Brian and I were endurance athletes from day one. Mm -hmm. And like, that was what we chose. And we thought our kids would choose that too because, mm -hmm. hey, you know, we love to run. Mm -hmm. Why don't you love to run? Right. And we introduced them to those sports when they were kids. Mm -hmm. What we found is they loved team sports. They mm -hmm. were both really good, mm -hmm. you know, soccer, basketball, all the team sports. Jade played golf in high school. She was very good at it mm -hmm. immediately. Mm -hmm. Did she want to pursue it in college? No, because well, they're both social kids. Very social. But I think what we had to do when they were young, and this was harder for my husband than for me for some reason, let go of the idea of them pursuing the sports that we thought they should pursue so he wanted them to be competitive cross-country skiers because mm -hmm. that's he loved that right we taught them to ski from a very right. I mean, before they could even walk they were on cross-country skis but that was not what they wanted mm -hmm. to do letting go of that was super hard for him but i remember saying to him we cannot push them mm -hmm. to do this if well, they don't want to do it and what is amazing <clears throat> to me now is seeing how driven they are in their chosen sports mm -hmm. So Jade... By their own choice. By their own choice. Jade yeah. does roller derby, oh, of yeah, all things, that, yeah. which to me is 
I that sport blows my mind. What I can't believe she she's does. in Denver, right? Well, it's Boulder, Denver. Okay. I mean, she What's the name of the team? Boulder County Derby. I okay. mean, yes, and she is phenomenal. Fun. Right, and she loves it, and she's so passionate about it. Well, and you would have never picked for her at ten to be on a roller derby. No, team. I mean, even though we took them, I mean, she could always roller skate, and yeah, she but liked it's different than being on roller so derby. So different. And then <laughs> the Je Jesse, the younger one, who never liked water sports when mm. she was younger. I mean, we would go to the beach, and mm. she would get sand on her. She'd be like, "Mom, I have to change." Mm. She is now addicted to water sports, and mm. she's big into surfing and hydrofoiling. Oh, fun! Which they both love, but Jesse is really like, passionate really about it. To it. Yeah, and it's really interesting to me because one of the things I write about in the book is passion, and how important that is to find. Yeah, and only you can only find that from inside. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because the Latin derivation. Is that the right? It's it's, yeah, <laughs> derivation of passion is patiar, which means to suffer. Huh. It's actually derived from the word to suffer. Because you're so involved because when or immersed you are in passionate it, about something, you avoid everything else at all costs. And also, you have to really give of yourself to mm -hmm. that, whatever that is. Or you make sacrifices for it. And it involves some level of suffering. To me, what I am striving for and what I hope my kids find. Mm -hmm. is the balance between, yes, you need to have discipline and you need to push yourself mm -hmm. if you are passionate about something, mm -hmm. but there is a fine line. Mm -hmm. When you push yourself so hard that everything else in your life suffers, mm -hmm. then it's too far. Right. So, so finding the balance. Finding the balance. Yeah. Yeah. And my kids seem to be finding it way earlier than I found it. <laughs> well, and I think we've, as a culture and society, given more space for people to look at that whereas historically it was so much more about performance and achievement yes. and now we look at things a little bit differently mm -hmm. that it is more important to try to find balance or to try to find outlets for self-care yeah which was not something that when you were a kid and certainly you know in older generations that people talked about finding those those areas of balance 100 my mother or self-care called me selfish because mm -hmm. of how much self-care i did like that was what she saw i was being yeah. selfish yeah and I had to really, it was one of the big challenges she and I had because to me running was taking care of myself, getting massage in my 20s, which was at that time, you got mas like massage, people didn't even. Well, you were, as an endurance athlete, your body goes through a lot more, so right. you need to do it to be able to perform at a certain level. Right, but, but it was not seen as something, it wasn't accepted. And well, it, it wasn't normal. Yeah. So where it's been much more normalized. Yeah. I mean, when I, my kids were little, um, I did a, I trained for a triathlon, um, yeah. when I was turning 40 and, um, I would go to a running class. Cause for mm -hmm. me, everyone's like, Oh, the triathlon and the swim. And I'm like, the swim, it's easy. <laughs> I like the run and it's at the end. Um, it, so I was never a runner. And when I moved to Colorado, I realized I had exercise induced asthma. And mm -hmm. now that I've been at mm -hmm. altitude for a long time, it doesn't bother me in mm -hmm. the same way, but I got to a place where I was running a fair amount and, um, I would go to my this running group where I started doing like walk run. It'd be one minute, one minute walk, one minute run. Um, I was never <laughs> an endurance runner. I did run a half marathon though. That's good. Uh, but when um, I would go to my running class, the kids are like, "Oh, you're leaving. Why are you going? It's not fair." And I'm like, "Oh, but mom will be so much better when I get home." Yeah. And I think women in general have had to 
sacrifice a lot of things. And so to be able to do something where you're taking care of yourself physically and emotionally to then be more present when you are home, yes. it is super important. And I think that self-care piece really in future gener or in past generations wasn't acknowledged as much. Right. And I feel like current generations and future generations have more awareness to all of that, which yeah. I think is super important. And I definitely think I modeled that for my kids and they definitely, in their teens, you know, they're still figuring things out, right? And their frontal lobe is not developed and they're confused. And I don't think they understood, but now I think they actually get it and they can look back and actually verbalize that to me and say- That they were able to watch some of your Watch that and happens, now yeah. see how much they appreciate that I did that because to them, that they want to model that they that is part of their lives now nice they know they need to exercise and get massage and take care, take of, care themselves. of themselves yeah um, and then as they move into yeah. their next chapter of you know maybe having families of their yes. own they saw that self-care modeled and yes. it will be hopefully something that helps them be in a better place as they transition yeah and i encourage them now to take care of their posture <laughs> and you know, I have you taught them the foundation street? Oh yes, and you know it's there's some resistance, I'm sure. There, there was some <laughs> resistance. Now they both realize how important it is. Nice. That doesn't mean that it's they do it all easy the time. for them. Yeah. Jade is much is really pretty committed to it. Uh, Jesse, it's interesting. Just the other day, she was sitting in the living room and she she stood like she realized that she was slouching and she she made Sarah. herself sit all up right. and she's. Because she knows she needs to do it, yeah. but at the same time, it's hard for anybody. Well, it's the whole thing of simple versus easy. It can be easy to do, but then it's also easy not to do. Exactly. And so a lot of it's getting into routines. Right. And I counseled her. I said I was just in this amazing workshop this last weekend, which I told you about before we started the podcast, is this body reading 101 with this brilliant man named Tom Myers who mm -hmm. wrote the book Anatomy Trains, and it's all about the fascial lines in the body. And what we now know, and I think people have known this for years, but you know the body will adapt to the patterns that we teach it. So mm -hmm. if we move in a certain way, mm -hmm. over time, the body molds to that, those positions. Mm -hmm. So if we're constantly slouched, your body gets used to being in that position. Well, if you do that for 50 years, it's Your not body good. compensates, yeah. And I said to Jesse in particular, I said, you do not, you want to change this now. Right. Because your father has that slouch right. that he really suffers from some back issues mm -hmm. because of that. He's very athletic. He's very strong. He's been able to overcome it to a degree. Mm -hmm. But if you start challenging that and changing those patterns early, mm -hmm. you're going to be much better off when you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, all the way up. Well, so a perfect example is, so I introduced you actually to my dad. Yes. And he did foundations training. He started doing a lot of it. He was, he had some back stuff that was going on and he was a golfer for yeah. many years and would, you know, walk 18 holes. And then in the last 18 months really sort of went downhill mm -hmm. because of his back. And it wasn't an injury. It was just, he had some, you know, over time. Yes. <laughs> breaking down of the body. And, and as a physician, I was, you know, <laughs> you're never a huge fan of telling an 83 year old man to have back surgery. Right. Um, but I haven't had uh, gotten to share with you. So he did the foundations, which I think was really helpful, but he went from really being very engaged in his life to being disengaged because there was a decline in his physical state. Yes. And to your point of his compensation was then he was like hunched over or yes. slouching and like his other leg got stronger, but that one, the leg that was affected with the weakness got weaker and weaker. It got to be where he was walking in the neighborhood every day and walking for golf to where it was a chore just to walk to the mailbox. Yeah. Yeah. So he had surgery two and a half, three weeks ago actually today, 
and out of the hospital. So he had the surgery in the morning. It was an outpatient procedure. It was a foraminectomy and decompression surgery. And he was not dragging his foot when he got home or a whole lot less. And he's now going on 30 minute walks with my mom every day. His pain was never higher than a two. Ah. Like it was a huge, a huge success story. But the comp compensatory piece, yes. when you do it over a long period of time, your body decompensates and then nice. and compensates. And then you end up in a posture that doesn't serve you. And so mm -hmm. the foundation method is super important for people to understand. Well, I'm so glad to hear he's doing well. Oh yeah, it's amazing. And He's like a different person. And I think what we have to realize is that gravity is pushing down on all of us from the moment we come out of the womb. Yep. Right? So we're supported by that amniotic fluid when we're in the womb. Yep. As soon as we come out, that starts the moment, you know, I mean, even with babies, you know, when they're just crawling and when they're, you know, in the smallest stage, not so much. But as soon as they start standing, well, that, they're getting knocked down. <laughs> right, right. And that effect starts taking its toll on the body. Right. So... <laughs> I think we need to start teaching people from a much younger age how body to body self-care. Yes, how to hold themselves up, how to fight those imbalances. You know, people we want people to be active and find sports that they love to do. But once you find a particular sport, like for example, your dad with golf, that has certain rotational forces mm -hmm. that if you're playing golf every day, it's going to have an effect right. on your structure. How do you counterbalance that? with something like foundation training. Yep. Maybe Pilates, whatever speaks to you, but right. you have to counter it. Well, Other, and massage and hydrotherapy or yes. heat therapy or cold therapy, yeah. making sure that you're taking antioxidants, like yeah. all the things that we talk in terms of vitality. Yeah, and runners are the worst because <laughs> once they find running, it's all they want to do. Right. And if they don't find activities to balance out well, what running does to the body, and nourishing themselves because yes. sometimes they want to be thinner because then they can run faster, yep. but they don't then nourish enough yes. so that it's that, again, fine-tuning and balance. 100%. Yeah. Well, I don't think I have a whole lot of other questions, but maybe just something fun. What's your favorite um, fall food or activity? Oh, well, fall, pumpkin seeds, pumpkin <laughs> bread, anything pumpkin, pumpkin I love. <laughs> but the other part of my life is that my husband and I now spend the winters in Hawaii. So, so you say pickleball? So pickleball. <laughs> right. And my favorite, I am a warm weather girl. I just, yeah. I love the heat. heat. Yeah. I thrive in warm weather. And so, yeah, so fall, I like fall. I'm not anxious or too For excited about the snow coming this weekend, <laughs> but I will tolerate it. And as much as I did winter sports, you know, my entire life. Yeah. I now I'm glad to be not in winter anymore. So pickleball is kind of my fun, fun thing that I, I love it because it's social. My husband and I can do it together. Uh, but I also love the water. We swim in the ocean. Uh, I love to swim. Awesome. So yeah, but anything that's fun now, yeah. I mean, I seek out fun activities and for me running is still fun. And as long as it is, I'll keep doing it. Great. But awesome. Yeah. So we'll post in the notes below um, the information about her book. Again, it is Running and Returning, Seeking Balance in an Imperfect World. Um, and then we'll put the link about um, kind of your bio right. and then um, information about foundations and maybe even what was the anatomy? Anatomy trains. So we can actually put a link to that as well so yeah. that if any of you are interested in learning more about any of those, Perfect. we have a link to it. But thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. As usual, it's so fun to have a conversation. It feels um, like and We've known each other forever. That's yeah. what I feel like. Um, and a great resource if anyone's looking for a Christmas present for an endurance athlete or um, just want to share the importance of self-care 
uh, as we age. So thanks today for tuning in to the Final Percent Podcast. And um, doing cool things with cool people is a big part of our community. So join us on Spotify or any of our other um, avenues that you can listen to our uh, podcast. And we look forward to seeing you in future episodes. Have a great day. It's the first.